Could Juvenal Moise, the Haitian leader who stayed past his February 7th deadline in office, be preparing to become the next Papa Doc Duvalier? Why is a new American president who ran recently on a Black Lives Matter platform defending Moise's brutal treatment of the Haitian people and his undemocratic usurpation of power? Where does this president fit inside a nearly 20-year program of U.S. and Canadian forces undoing democracy on this island nation? How can ordinary people in Haiti, the United States, and Canada combine forces to reverse the trend towards an era of unprecedented hardship? This week on the Global Research News Hour, as the Black History Month draws to a close, we turn our attention toward the embattled site of the first nation in the New World to liberate itself from slavery and suffer the consequences of that move in a white supremacist world. We get a few facts on recent developments in our first half hour from Haiti Liberté writer and editor Kim Ives. In our second half hour, we get more depth and background and informed ways Canadians can help the situation from Haitian-born activist Jean Seville. On this week's program, Juvenel Moise, or Freedom, the struggle for the soul of Haiti. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of February 26, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, unoccupied in Ishinabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The strength of Malcolm X's message remains with us today, some 56 years since his assassination. African Americans remain under national oppression, economic exploitation, and institutional racism. They are still subjected to U.S. military service in order to carry out the political and economic imperatives of imperialism. A resurgence in black consciousness and anti-racism is a healthy development in the U.S. The national response to the police and vigilante killings of African Americans has alerted the international community that racism remains alive and well in the U.S. despite its claims of being a defender of human rights and social justice. That comes from the article, Malcolm X from the Grassroots to the African Revolution, by Abiyomi Azikiwe. Posted February 24th. Whether we look at Klaus Schwab's Great Reset and what it entails, the struggle of Indian farmers against Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Cargill, etc., or Bill Gates and his plan to vaccinate the planet, geoengineer the climate, or roll out his and his tech giant cronies' warped vision for a one-world fake food agriculture, it is becoming increasingly clear that the rich and powerful are mounting an ultimate 
power grab. Based on their warped techno-utopian vision of the future, they want to exert total control of farming, food, nature, personal identities, information, the climate, our bodies, just about everything that will shape the rest of this century and beyond. They want to build back better by ensuring they own everything and you own nothing. Lockdowns have been a convenient tool for helping to kickstart their new normal. A.L. Morton's book can teach us much about resisting tyranny, but only if we listen. That comes from the article, A People's History of Struggle, Liberty or Lockdown, by Colin Todd Hunter, posted February 24th. No Thucydides trap of rising power threatening established power. Still scope for misunderstandings, a naval class in the South China Sea, an exchange at the border war with India, fighter jets taking matters into their hands. But the economic race with the United States is over. China has new economic goals. Actually, China has new priorities, and the economy is now second fiddle to politics. That comes from the article, China's economic race with the U.S. is over. Beijing set to focus on building domestic production networks. By Tom Clifford, posted February 24th. NATO seems oblivious to the changing dynamics of today's world as if it's living on a different planet. Its one-sided reflection group report cites Russia's violation of international law in Crimea as a principal cause of deteriorating relations with the West and insists that Russia must return to full compliance with international law. But it ignores the U.S. and NATO's far more numerous violations of international law and leading role in the tensions fueling the renewed Cold War. Illegal invasions of Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq, the broken agreement over NATO expansion into Eastern Europe, U.S. withdrawals from important arms control treaties, more than 300,000 bombs and missiles dropped on other countries by the United States and its allies since 2001, U.S. proxy wars in Libya and Syria, which plunged both countries into chaos, revived al-Qaeda, and spawned the Islamic State, U.S. management of the 2014 coup in Ukraine, which led to economic collapse, Russian annexation of Crimea, and civil war in eastern Ukraine, and the stark reality of the United States' record as a serial aggressor whose offensive war machine dwarfs Russia's defense spending by 11 to 1 and China's by 2.8 to 1, even without counting other NATO countries' military spending. NATO's failure to seriously examine its own role in what it euphemistically calls uncertain times should therefore be more alarming to Americans and Europeans than its one-sided criticisms of Russia and China, whose contributions to the uncertainty of our times pale by comparison. The short-sighted preservation and expansion of NATO for a whole generation after the dissolution of the USSR and the end of the Cold War has tragically set the stage for the renewal of those hostilities, or maybe even made their revival inevitable. That comes from the article, What Planet is NATO Living on? 
by Medea Benjamin and Nicholas J.S. Davies, posted February 24th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. On February 7th, Yvickel Dabrezel, two other Supreme Court justices, and several other officials were arrested by the Haitian police. The president of Haiti, Jovenel Moise, claimed that they were trying to kill him and overthrow him when, in fact, the political opposition, the Haitian Bar Association, the Superior Court of Judiciary Power, and other constitutional bodies argued he was bound to leave the presidential palace as of that date. He continues to wield power and is cracking down on protesters. He claims that he may rule for one more year, though all these other individuals disagree. Do these and other developments usher in the return of brutal dictatorial power? To get a perspective on this, we first turn to Kim Ives. He's a writer, editor, and one of the founders of Haiti Liberté. This uh, Juvenel Moise, he's been ruling by decree since January 13th. Uh, and it was a surprise that, uh, or it wasn't a surprise that Moisey, in fact, remained in the palace. Um, I mean, you and others have said that Moisey was going to become another Duvalier, uh, but, uh, and this is a long time coming. Could you explain the measures put in place on January 20, 2020, and, and, and be, before, even previous to that, that showed him putting in place measures and instruments that would cement his return as the, the return to the days of Duvalier? Well, his, his very election was itself a harbinger of what we're uh, experiencing today. He uh, came in under extremely uh, controversial, to say the least, conditions. Uh, the election was quite patently uh, meddled with uh, and only less than 20% of the Haitian electorate uh, participated, uh, less than 500,000 people uh, uh, elected him out of a country of 12 million people. So uh, this shows already that his uh, mandate was extremely compromised to begin with. But I could say uh, since he assumed dictatorial powers, basically. He is uh, ruling by decree since, as you said, January 13, 2020. Uh, So for a year and close to uh, two months, he's uh, been the sole decider of uh, all affairs Haitian. And uh, the most uh, spectacular decree that he made really was the formation of a new Gestapo, uh, which happened uh, back in November, uh, called the ANI, uh, the uh, Agence d'Intelligence Nationale, the Agence Nationale d'Intelligence, uh, 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 basically 
a force which not only can spy on people, which can arrest them, the people who are the agents of it are completely free from uh, reproach or from being uh, legally um, uh, uh, responded to in any way, they, they are, they're immune. Uh, so this is a very similar to the Tontamakuts, what was called the uh, Volunteers for National Security, uh, VNS under Jean-Claude and Papadoc Duvalier. Uh, and um, prior to that, he had begun to <clears throat> show his cards because he, he said he was not going to step down when the Constitution dictates on uh, February 7th, 2021, he said he would stay on. And in addition, without any parliament in place and totally disregarding the Supreme Court, which said he has to step down along with the Haitian Bar Federation and the what's called the Higher Council of the Judicial Power, uh, they've all said he, according to the Constitution, should no longer be president. Uh, but he said, no, I'm going to not only remain as president, but I'm going to hold a constitutional referendum to rewrite the Constitution. And in this, he uh, plans to basically make it possible for a president to remain for two terms consecutively, which was previously not possible under the 1987 Constitution. So, uh, this is very similar to what Duvalier did in uh, the early 60s, uh, where he essentially rewrote the Constitution and had the second referendum said he could stay on as president for life. So uh, we see uh, the moves of Jovenel, although it is a different period, and I'm not sure that the international community the code for the United States and Washington would tolerate that because um, their their approach to dealing with uh, countries like uh, Haiti has has changed. So I'm not sure they would um, agree to him anointing himself as uh, king. Mm. Um, you, you mentioned earlier about the AI ANI uh, and that as being essentially a, a Gestapo. Um, and of course, I mean, this is after uh, Leon Charles becomes uh, the leader of it, uh, or is appointed to that, replacing his previous candidate by only 15, who'd served for only about 15 months, recalling him from Washington after a 15 or 16 year gap. Uh, I, I am curious if you could paint a picture of the violence conducted against demonstrators thus far in Haiti. Uh, any particularly shocking incidents you would like to highlight that indicates that their violence is more oppressive than restrained? Oh, it's hard to know where to begin. The police have been just incredibly aggressive, uh, arbitrary, um, shooting people with live rounds, shooting them with tear gas candidates. There have been uh, dozens, hundreds, really, of people killed over the past uh, four years of uh, demonstrations under Jovenel. Uh, and really, um, what the listeners should understand and viewers is that uh, this is the culmination of 10 years of neo-devalier's rule. Uh, Haiti was basically under uh, a sort of Lavalas and semi-Lavalas governments 
from 1991 to 2011. That was uh, the time frame that uh, President Jean-Bertrand Aristide and his uh, sometimes comrade uh, René Preval uh, held power, uh, alternated power, even though both of their reigns were sort of uh, checkered or uh, interrupted by coup d'etats and overshadowed by military occupations by the UN and uh, at times by a coalition of Canada, the US and France. So uh, that period of Lavalas rule came to an end really when the US intervened in the elections of 2010 and 2011 uh, after the 2010 earthquake, uh, they basically took over the Haitian government uh, through Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton came down in January of 2011 and told Randy Preval, you have to put Michelle Markley in. This was the mentor of the current president, Jovenel Moise. So since Martelly took uh, power after equally fraudulent elections, uh, apparently in 2011, we've had this PHTK, Haitian Bald-Headed Party, uh, that's the acronym, uh, in power. And it is a neo-devalurist government. And demonstrations have basically been nonstop since uh, Martelly came in. And so all through Martelly and all through Jovenel. Now, Martelly had the slight advantage that the Petro Caribe Fund, which was provided by Venezuela, was providing him with money to do a couple of projects, a couple of grimas, as the Haitians say, that is, uh, uh, um, bluffed projects. Uh, but uh, Jovenel didn't have that. Essentially, because of Trump's sanctions on Venezuela, the Petro Caribe program came to a screeching halt in 2018. So. Uh, things got much, much worse. And the, this latest wave of demonstrations and demands for Chauvenel to step down began really in July of 2018. So these demonstrations that we've seen over these 10 years have been really severely repressed. I mean, people have been gunned down, students, um, uh, bystanders, uh, children, uh, and so it is a terrible situation uh, to be fighting against uh, a police force, as you said, headed now by Leon Charles, who, who cut his teeth on uh, re repressing the rebellious slums after the 2004 coup d'etat. Uh, so uh, the thing has now maybe even taken a new phase because, Michael, as of yesterday, uh, the U.S. Embassy asked Colombian police to come and advise the Haitian police force. Uh, I mean, to me, this is a little like having Israel come in. I mean, uh, can we find a more uh, repressive, corrupt uh, force than the Colombians to come in? And so now the Colombians are are advising and backing up the Haitians in uh, their repression, supposedly against the uh, corruption uh, against uh, kidnapping because some two Dominicans and a Haitian were kidnapped on Saturday. Uh, they were part of the film crew doing a film on kidnapping. They were kidnapped, so they brought in the Colombians, but we think this could be one more sign of a possible uh, foreign 
uh, intervention, or it will be the excuse for foreign intervention. And this would be the third time since uh, 1994. Yeah, of course. Speaking of that, I mean, also, I think Canada has uh, played a role in training the, the police forces uh, in uh, that country uh, going way back uh, 15 years. Um, but the U.S. and Canada know of the, the decisions made by the Superior Court of Justice, the Haitian the Bar Association and other constitutional uh, agencies that you mentioned. Uh, they know or should know of Article 134.2 of the, the Constitution, which forbids staying beyond the February 7th deadline. Uh, Moisey counters that the opposition was trying to arre- attempt a coup and kill him and uh, and that he's has an extra year to serve as president according to an amendment uh, to the Constitution which he wrote. Um, neither the... Uh, Neither the U.S. nor Canada seems to have a problem with this, this situation. Um, you know, if Trump had tried to stay an extra day, they, they would have arrested him. But Moisey is well past his expiry date, and, and they're all right with it. What is your assessment, then, of, of why the leaders are taking a stance on Moisey's side? Uh, well, I think primarily um, there are two reasons. One is that the last time there was a civilian a civil society opposition um, coalition, which then put together a government and held elections, the result was Jean-Bertrand Aristide. That's what happened in 1990 after the neo-devalueers dictator Prosper Avril stepped down or was driven out of power on Mar- in March of 1990. And six months later, in uh, December uh, 1990, um, uh, maybe a little more than six, seven, eight. The uh, Haitian people held an election on December 16th, 1990, and Jean-Bertrand won it, uh, 67% of the vote. Uh, and that's when they stopped counting because he was pulling away. Um, <clears throat> uh, so they, they fear that could happen. Uh, that would most surely not happen under uh, an election controlled and rigged by uh, Jovenel Moise. But the other reason is that Moise has been extremely helpful in uh, the campaign that Washington is waging against Venezuela, which is, uh, as we know, one of their principal um, uh, targets in, in Latin America. I mean, they're facing a problem because the pink tide 2.0 is returning in uh Bolivia, Ecuador, possibly in April, uh, and Brazil shows all signs of Bolsonaro uh, being given the heave-ho by the Brazilian people, uh, and so forth. So uh, Jovenel Moise has uh, joined the Lima Group, which is this gaggle of uh, U.S. puppets that uh, basically go after Venezuela all the time and um, has been very much put in the front of all these coalitions. And as uh, a a country which was very close to Venezuela uh, since 2008 or 2006, when uh, uh, President René Preval came back in, uh, the uh, Venezuelan vice president, uh, Vincente Rangel was was there to sign the Petrocaribe deal, even though it took two years due to Washington's uh, backroom pressure for the Petrocaribe uh, program to come online. But uh, so Pet- 
through Petrocaribe, Haiti, and Venezuela became extremely close. Uh, 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 the uh, President uh, Hugo Chavez, Haiti, in uh, 2007, and received a, a hero's welcome, spontaneous, completely spontaneous. People poured out by the tens of thousands and, and mobbed his motorcade. He got down and jogged with the people. Uh, I mean, it was a tremendous um, uh, moment and really showed uh, the bond between the Venezuelan revolution and the Haitian people. So uh, Jovenel's totally uh, just uh, astonishing uh, stab in the back of the Venezuelans by joining the Washington campaign, Haiti still recognizes this clown, Juan Guaido, as the president of Venezuela. So, uh, of course, Washington uh, is loath to give up somebody who is uh, such a uh, lapdog, such a handmaiden of their projects in Latin America. So I think those are the main two reasons. Uh, Washington and its uh, second fiddle, Canada, um, which is beautifully portrayed, by the way, in this film that is, um, I guess, premiering basically this weekend online, uh, Haiti Betrayed. Uh, it it uh, really shows how Canada and U the U.S., a little bit with France as well, have uh, been keeping their foot, their boot on the neck of the Haitian people. When, one, just one last question, and then I'll let you go. Um, basically, what happens next? I mean, there are people in Washington who are raising concerns about the situation. Joe Black Lives Matter. Biden is siding with the forces, pummeling the people in ways that make George Floyd's death seem gentle by comparison. Is there any sign that forces both within Haiti and in the United States and Canada will indeed force the man out of office? Well, um, I think, uh, yes, eventually we are going to see the end of the PHTK rule in uh, Haiti. Uh, the former coup prime minister of the 2004 to 2006 coup, Gerard Latour II, said the PHTK will be in power for 40 years. That was his prediction. But uh, my sense is that the Haitian people are fed up. Um, however, they are divided uh, 20 years of US um, a low intensity and high intensity warfare have left the progressive and left movements somewhat fractured, fairly weakened, um, uh, divided uh, parties, including the Lavalas family party of uh, President Aristide. And so the opposition is filled with uh, uh, scoundrels who were at one point very close to Jovenel, didn't have any problem in principle, and now they're standing in leadership of the opposition, uh, which leads the people to be slightly distrustful of that opposition. So uh, these are the many challenges that face uh, the people in overthrowing uh, this, this growing tyrant, this growing devalurist uh, in their midst. Uh, however, I, I know from watching Haiti for these past uh, 40 years very closely from ringside that uh, the Haitian people, when, when they're done with you, they are done with you. And you are eventually somehow, some way, not going to be uh, able to uh, stay on top of them. So uh, I, even though it looks right now that uh, he's, he's holding his own, 
the fact that the Biden administration, and as you mentioned, we have a number of uh, congressional Democrats who are uh, sounding the alarm, everybody from Patrick Leahy in the Senate to uh, Andy Levin in the House and, Misha, and uh, uh, Maxine Waters, et cetera. So I think it's uh, going to be, as they say in Creole, pita pitris, the later, the worse. <laughs> so the more they hold it, the more profound the revolution will be. So, uh, uh, you know, they can try to hold on, but they're just going to make it worse in the end for them and better for the people. Okay, well... Um... Kim Ives, uh, you've been great. Thanks again for joining us and, and, and sharing your thoughts and, and the facts about the, the, the recent uh, situation in Haiti. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you for the invitation. We've been joined by Kim Ives. He is a writer and editor and co-founder of Haiti Liberté. He joined us from New York City. Listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The recent return of the Haitian soap opera, heralded on by forces centered in the United States and Canada, has a legacy stretching back decades. At the core, corporate elements within those countries stand to boost profits at the expense of the poor people of Haiti through sweatshops, mining, and other interests. To get a grip on the larger picture, the Global Research News Hour spoke with Jean Saville. He is a Haitian-born activist and writer, also occasional contributor to Global Research. He joined us from Ottawa. I first asked him to spell out how Canadian and U.S. agencies were shaping the landscape to suit the return of Haiti to a Papa Doc form of Duvalier dictatorship rule. That first government lasted seven months and the coup took place by direct intervention of the CIA, which used uh, the remnants of what they used to call the Forces Armées d'Haïti, uh, the military, uh, to uh, overthrow and the president's life was uh, barely saved. Um, and he spent three years in exile, during which the United States government, uh, high officials, uh, basically pressured Aristide as if he was a hostage to return on the condition that he's going to apply the policies of the candidate who was against him, who was the World Bank official Marc Bazin. Privatization, to stop things like doubling the minimum wage, etc. So all of the literacy programs, the healthcare programs, all of this he had to abandon uh, if he accepted to return with the Americans. The thing is, he didn't have really a choice uh, in the matter. Uh, and so there was a, a, a transition in the United States at the time between Bill Clinton and uh, George H.W., uh, uh, the elder. And... Um, and Clinton returned with President Aristide in 2000, sorry, in 1994, essentially uh, to observe uh, that his uh, mandate was stolen because the Haitian constitution does not allow you to have two consecutive terms. Uh, and so he had to organize election for someone to, uh, to replace him. And so logically, everybody knew 
the, the Haitian people are not stupid. They realize that, you know, their democracy was stolen from them by the CIA. Uh, and, you know, we know that H, uh, GHW Bush was the former director of the CIA. I mean, we're not confused about what happened. Um, it's the same story of what happened in the Congo uh, when uh, the white supremacist forces overthrow Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba and put puppets in his, in his place. So they took away Aristide's uh, um, uh, mandate, first mandate, and the people basically were waiting for the next opportunity to elect him again, which they did. And that's where we started to see the direct and active involvement of Canadian officials in the undermining of the second Aristide government. He was elected in the same year that George Bush, the lesser, was also supposedly elected, remember the Florida fiasco. Two elections, the one in Haiti where anybody could have predicted the outcome months ahead of time because people knew they stole the, the first mandate from Aristide. And then George Bush, who got his brother, Jeb Bush, to help him win Florida and therefore the U.S. presidency. Yet you see the reaction. President Aristide is being uh, maligned in uh, uh, political circles, uh, uh, diplomatic circles, the OAS. Everybody is tweeting him as if he stole the election in 2000. Yet if you ask them, okay, so... They say George Bush stole the 2000 elections from Al Gore. Who did Aristide steal the election from in 2000 and then silence? Because they cannot point to anybody because it's a stupid question. It, 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 it is not based on fact. It is sheer white supremacist power that managed to undermine the second election of Aristide. Because what few people understand in what's happening in Haiti today is that what we're observing is a struggle of white supremacy against the black majority in Haiti. And that struggle is the whole history of Haiti and it hasn't changed. It is seldom discussed, and I'm one of the rare people who talk about it, that there are 12 white families in Haiti that control the economy of that country in collaboration, because they could not have done it on their own in cahoots with their cousins in white North America and in Europe. Mm. This is not something that's particular to Haiti. I mean, we saw it play out in Bolivia and in other places. However, in Haiti, it takes a very uh, wicked form. So if you take, for instance, one personality, one family, uh, his name is André Aped. He's a white American who owns uh, TV stations and sweatshops, uh, things of the, uh, of the sort in Haiti. Um, and um, he participated in both coups, 1991 and 2004. And to this day, this man is essentially the equivalent of Cecil Rhodes in the old Rhodesia. So the latest puppet president that they've put in place. So, you know, the core group in Haiti is for all intents and purposes, the equivalent of the Lima group as they use it uh, to try to overthrow a legitimate government in Venezuela and put a puppet of their own liking. So that core group um, is uh, setting up uh, 
uh, a fake president in Haiti, Jovenel Moïse, and you can see, you know, Haitians have used all kinds of um, graphic uh, uh, representations to say that this dude is a fake president, he's a fake entrepreneur, he's a, a, a fake banana farmer, but he's a real money launderer, a real thief, a real drug dealer, and all of these things are documented. Mm -hmm. And everybody who does any research about who Jovenel Moïse is, have that information. Could However, you... he is serving a very good purpose by helping those 12 mafia families in Haiti maintain the economy and sharing it with a few black Haitians who are their collaborators, their partners in crime. There was a, a story about uh, a, a group that, uh, well, it was a, a, a senator's uh, wife that had uh, purchased about a $4.2 million uh, a piece of property, and uh, you know it was really quite controversial, and, and it just it, it brings up the the whole issue of the ways in which the Duvaliers of the world, through money laundering and enabling Haitian control and other things through the Royal Bank and other uh, crooked accounts, are operating. Could, could you maybe uh, you know elaborate a little bit on that incident and and how? Yeah that figures into the larger Absolutely. dynamic. And, and so the, the name of the senator in question is Woni Celestin, and his wife, uh, Louise, uh, Marie-Louisa uh, Aubin Celestin, was also consul uh, at uh, the uh, Montreal consulate, Haitian consulate. I mean, despotism is <laughs> the, the feature of that fake government that was established uh, uh, in Haiti after the coup. See, what people need to realize is that Haiti had 7,000 elected officials when the invasion happened in February 2004. And they removed all of these elected officials, including the president who was shipped to Africa in exile. Okay, but sometimes people forget about the other 7,000 elected officials. So they were replaced by unelected thugs, some of them convicted criminals. And later, when they started organizing fake elections that are completely under the control of the foreign powers, the United Nations are used for that, the OAS, the core group, they're the ones who carry the, the ballots, they control the whole thing. And they declare when there is going to be an election. So Haiti is not an independent country right now. Okay, mm -hmm. so this guy, Wani Celestin, was first elected as a lower chamber a uh, member of parliament, a deputy, uh, in those fake elections of uh, 2011, which gave us also as president uh, 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 someone who doesn't actually qualify because he has U.S. citizenship, uh, Michel Martelly. Uh, but Hillary Clinton came in to Haiti and said that he has to be the one who goes to the second round, and eventually he became president. So it's in those same fake elections that Roni Celestin became a member of the lower chamber, and then he was uh, given the title of senator in the second uh, set of uh, fake elections in 2016. And now, when they found out, and it's actually a, a local uh, Haitian activist who does a, 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 a Facebook blog and YouTube blog in Montreal, his name is Morvan John Collum, who put out the information about this outrageous situation. I mean, people from all over the place are calling me and saying, can you actually buy a house cash 
for $4.2 million in Canada. And I'm saying, I, I didn't know I could do that. <laughs> of course, I never asked myself a question because I know I don't have that kind of money. But, um, you know, you have all of the media that is available to us here, and none of them put out the, country, the, 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 the story. You know, it, this guy had the story out for several weeks, uh, and eventually it became too embarrassing to, to, to ignore it, and, and it made it to La Presse and, 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 and some of the news. And you know what this guy has said to defend himself? He said that he was always rich. Um, uh, you know, I mean, he, not that he was always rich, but he was rich before he became uh, a member of the ruling party uh, and that uh, he made his money and, <laughs> uh, because he has a special contract with the government uh, to produce oil. Haiti doesn't produce oil, okay? So what it means is that this fake government, they distribute all the contracts among themselves. And so he's saying that he makes about $8 million a month. So, you know, this $4.2 million people are making a big deal of, this is like money that he uses to buy spices for, for his cooking. That's what he said, actually. Okay, mm -hmm. so now the question is, who facilitated such a thing in Montreal? Because, I mean, you, you don't go and buy houses like that. And it's not just one house. He has other uh, houses that he, his wife has uh, uh, purchased in Montreal, etc. So it will be interesting uh, to see what the investigation shows. Um, but what often is not spoken about is the underlying story of the corruption that we're talking about here. That is the money that became very evident uh, and in circulation in Haiti since 2008, its origin is actually Venezuela. As a Petro-Caribe fund, which is an arrangement that President Hugo Chavez started in the Caribbean, and several countries have used those funds to invest in their infrastructure. And if there's one thing that Haiti always needed is the opportunity to invest in its physical infrastructure, roads, healthcare, things like that. Because as you understand, throughout its history, Haiti has been at war with white supremacy. So whenever Haitians had a progressive president or leader, we had what they call gunboat diplomacy. If you look at the whole 19th century, when it's not a German boat that hands up in the Port-au-Prince Harbor and says that they're going to blow the National Palace with the president unless a ransom of $1 million is paid, a few months later, it's the British who show up. And then a few months later, it's the Spanish, et cetera, et cetera. So, and the French collected from 1825 to 1947 the equivalent of $40 billion from the impoverished people of Haiti. So you understand that it is in that context that when the Petro-Caribe funds were mobilized, Haitians saw an opportunity for them to finally move away from that situation, ridiculous situation, such as when President Aristide was elected in 1991, where the national budget of Haiti was the equivalent of you know, some kind of a high school in Canada. Okay, I mean, you can't do much, and, and of course, when we had the government of Aristide, he was boycotted by the IMF, the World Bank, 
you know, in fact, Haiti was being ransomed by the IDB because the IDB was pressured by the United States, Canada, and the European Union to say that before Haiti can access loans that were approved for its healthcare infrastructure, et cetera, uh, the government of Aristide had to pay loans that were taken by the Duvalier dictatorship mm. and which were never paid. Because of course, Duvalier was a dictator who stole the money and went to France with it and put it in, in Swiss banks. Mm. So this is the context that this Petro-Caribbean funds came in. And what happened is that Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton were very much present in Haiti at the time. And that's why Hillary Clinton insisted that Michel Martelly becomes president of Haiti, although he was fifth in the, uh, uh, in the group of people who were moving from the first round to the second round, and only the first top people are supposed to go in the, uh, in the second round, Hillary Clinton and the OAS, and you know, this is well documented. You had yeah. even officials like Ricardo Centenfus, uh, the Brazilian uh, member of uh, the OAS, who actually wrote a book to say, this is outrageous. You guys are playing with the lives of Haitians because this is not the result of the election. It's uh, the white men and women who went in there and changed the election results. So what, the reason what, why they did that what, is that the United States wanted to squander the Petro-Caribbean funds. They wanted it to fail. And what better way to do it than to put a puppet in there who they know to be corrupt and, of course, no investigation has been able to be conducted since uh, in detail, although there's been some studies that show that, you know, for instance, that Martelly, his wife, his, uh, his son, all of them were involved in stealing millions and possibly billion of dollars in cahoots with Bill Clinton, mm. where the Clinton Foundation was inescapable in anything that has to do, especially after the earthquake, where if you weren't a friends of Bill, you couldn't get a contract in Haiti. And that's why people need to ask for the CBC and, and, and other uh, uh, instances in our country to go and investigate well, where what, the money went. Yeah, well, you're getting to the, the next thought I had. I mean, the, the issue of solidarity with the Haitian people, because this would strike most people as, as an outrage. I mean, we saw how much animosity there was towards the, uh, the the killing of George Floyd. And yet, you know, now with the protests, I mean, there have been scores of people who have been subjected to it by the police, trained by the, uh, the the Canadian authorities. So what what needs to come together in Haiti and in Canada to ensure restoration for the Haitian people? Yeah, so with Solidarité um, Quebec IT, uh, uh, Montreal and Ottawa-based group that we've been trying to educate uh, ourselves and, and, and fellow Canadians about what's happening in Haiti, uh, we focus on uh, dignity, justice, and reparations, because Haiti is an international crime scene, and it's an ongoing crime. Uh, and, and, and our country, unfortunately, participated in this crime. It's documented. Uh, you have tons of books like Eve Engler's Canada in Haiti, Waging War Against the Pool, Haiti's uh, New Dictatorship by Justin Pardew, um, or Jeb Sprague's Paramilitary uh, and the Assault on Democracy in Haiti. I mean, it's well documented. 
okay? The Ottawa Initiative on Haiti, uh, where the meeting took place here at Mitch Lake to overthrow the legitimate government of Haiti and replace it by these thugs, like Wony Celestin, who bought this $4.2 million mansion in Montreal. I mean, all of this is known to us. So now what we're asking is for people to become citizens. And that means to take a closer look at Canadian foreign policy and ask ourselves, have we done everything in our power to remove, to banish any trace of racism and white supremacy in Canadian foreign policy. Because in 2021, we cannot pretend to be obfuscated um, and, and walking the streets because of what happened in Minneapolis about George Floyd and pretend not to see that this is also happening in the realm of international politics. Okay, I mean, Haiti currently have knees on its neck. And those knees have been on Haitian's neck for centuries. And it is related to race. Because like I mentioned, the, it is not a coincidence that the richest person in Haiti, his name is Gilbert Bijot, and he's not of African descent whereas the Haitian population is 99% of African descent. It's not a coincidence because these guys have their own private ports and they, they, they inherit those ports, those uh, um, uh, uh, contracts, um, you know, where they have exclusive rights. So Jovenel Moïse just issued a a decree on February the 8th, where he uh, allocated 8,600 uh, hectares of land to André Haped, the same guy who participated in the coups and uh, participated in a fraudulent uh, election. And when you do fraud, according to the Haitian electoral law, they were supposed to be banished for at least 10 years and uh, put in jail for at least two years. But of course, the core group, the OAS, the United Nations intervened. And so instead of banishing uh, the people who were caught, because there was an investigation, that's why the election was delayed. They were caught cheating in the election. And instead of applying the law and putting them in jail, the Haitians who were put in power uh, were so cowardly they accepted the pressure from the United uh, Nations and the OAS and really the uh, US embassy that really runs the show down there. And they al allowed him to, to, to remain as president. And now the Haitian people are demonstrating on a regular basis uh, and they're being killed. Mm -hmm. uh, today I'm uh, watching the news because uh, kidnappings are happening uh, in high numbers every day. Uh, and, and the phenomenon that we've never had before is that um, these kidnappings are not only happening in the capital city, but they're happening in uh, the countryside. There are some areas that were very uh, productive for agriculture, in particular rice production. And now the peasants 
are, are, are leaving those places because gangs um, uh, have taken over. And Haiti doesn't produce guns. So how come this island is receiving so many weapons and ammunitions on a regular steady pace? <laughs> okay, and you see this young man who who are you know not dressed uh, 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 in a, in any rich way, and they have you know weapons that are like seven thousand, eight thousand dollars. It's not um, a mystery because a few cases have happened where they've found the weapons cache, and invariably it's those twelve families that have access to the ports that control the import export business in Haiti who. Uh, bring in those weapons. And, uh, and a characteristic of the situation is that they're asking sometimes uh, a million or $2 million ransom per kidnapped person, yet they have never kidnapped a millionaire in Haiti. Could you... Millionaires exist, <laughs> but they don't it... kidnap the millionaires. They're kidnapping people who uh, go on vacation as a diaspora, or even some of the most impoverished people. Because the idea is that they're not really looking just for money. They're creating a situation of terror, especially along the, um, the border, uh, I mean, near, near the um, waterfront, okay? So that people can sell their land cheaply to those families, and so they can take it over. So they're creating, that's why they're setting up those gangs in those areas. Could you, just bringing it back to our, you know, the topic of, of solidarity, I, I know that there's an event coming uh, this weekend. Yes. Do you, you want to say a little bit about who's in it and, and what they're doing? And Yes, so on Sunday, um, the 28th of February, we're having a, a showing of the film Haiti Betrayed, which uh, a Canadian filmmaker, Hélène Brière, produced. And it's the first work that documented, I mean, the film work that documented so well uh, what happened and what is happening in Haiti. Um, I'm featured in that film. Uh, um, several other people have participated uh, in, in it. You will see some Canadian officials uh, like Denis Coderre, Denis Paradis, who participated in some of these uh, outrageous meetings. Um, and um, it's actually available online now. So throughout the week, people can go on uh, foreignpolicy.ca. They will see the announcement. And then uh, Haiti Betrayed is the name of the film. And after, uh, at, at 7.30, we will have a, an open discussion about uh, Canadian foreign policy uh, towards Haiti and uh, what we suggest should be done. And I have repeatedly made the call uh, to several Canadian prime ministers and, and, and governments to really, really think about uh, an overhaul of Canadian foreign policy towards Haiti. Uh, we could have influence in the region. I mean, we've had so many stupid bids to get a seat at the United Nations that never went anywhere because we are trying to get there by being subservient to the United States. This is a ridiculous strategy. Canada is too beautiful of a nation for that kind of an approach. I mean, Haiti needs to develop its mining industry, okay? Haitians want to exploit 
they are gold reserves. But they don't want the same model that is being applied in Guatemala or in the Congo, where the natives are impoverished and they have a puppet government in their country uh, that is there to mobilize the military to you know, control the natives whose lands are being stolen. Uh, and then you know, the multinational company shows up, you know, exploit the land, takes the gold and leaves nothing for the people, especially without any soil remediation uh, uh, for environmental protection. What we're saying is that we want a normalized relationship between Canada and Haiti. So Haitians and Canadians should mobilize so that Haitians have the last word as to who is their president, who is their prime minister, who is their government, and whether or not they will exploit their mines, their natural resources. If they decide to not exploit it, that's their business. Uh, but if they want to invite uh, uh, Canadians to participate, it should not be on the old colonial terms. I mean, I particularly think that in the day when people are talking about the end of white supremacy and George Floyd and all of this Black Lives Matter, people need to really think seriously what it means that black nationhood matters. I mean, we don't treat countries in Europe like that. Why? Why is it we understand that it wouldn't make sense for a bunch of uh, um, uh, black uh, diplomats in Ottawa to meet and have a, a, a discussion about removing the Queen of England from power? We understand that would be stupid, barbaric, unacceptable. Then why is it that people who are supposedly intelligent people can have a meeting here at Meech Lake, all of them white, and they decide they're going to kidnap the president of Haiti. Not only that, but they're going to do it in the year of the bicentennial of the end of racial slavery. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, you know, the same people will be out there in the streets, Black Lives Matter. <laughs> Jean Saint-Ville, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you again. Uh, thank you so much for sharing this information with our listeners. Thank you. And thank you for the beautiful work that you guys are doing in uh, globalresearch.ca. Yeah, you're welcome. So we've been speaking with Jean Seville, a Haitian-born activist and writer, also occasional contributor to Global Research. He joined us from Ottawa. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.